This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to Episode 55. For the majority of pilots looking towards a career in aviation, the purpose of becoming a flight instructor is to build flight time. The position of flight instructor is viewed by many as the job you take to pay your dues in the aviation industry. You know, this is an unfortunate perception because one of the most important and respected people at a general aviation airport is the flight instructor. Flight instructor is a challenging and rewarding career which allows you to have a profound impact on the aspiration and safety of an individual pilot. Today I have with me a passionate aviator and an outstanding flight instructor, Jason Miller. If you're thinking of a career as a flight instructor, this episode is for you. Jason and I will discuss how to be successful, and also we're going to debunk some myths about the career of flight instructing. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Jason. Uh, thanks so much, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, last time uh, Jason and I spoke, it was at Sun and Fun. It seems that Jason and I keep passing each other because we're so busy with podcasts and doing all these things. We're we're super busy, and, and it's it's a good thing, though. It's a wonderful thing. Sun and Fun sure was, was awesome, too, by the way. Um, before we get started, real quick uh, announcement as far as our sponsors are concerned. If you could go out to aviationcareerspodcast.com and uh, link to some of our sponsors there that help support the uh, podcast here. Also, if you're interested in some books on careers and audiobooks in general, just go to uh, audibletrial.com slash careers, audibletrial.com slash careers. We're also going to have show notes to this show at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 55. So anything Jason talks about, links, etc., he's going to send me those, and I'll put them out there on the website so you can link to them. Also, he's got lots of uh, really good stuff out there on the Internet. Uh, we're not going to get into it too much here, but I do want him to, to definitely plug the stuff that he has because he has an awesome podcast and some awesome training tools, and uh, we'll definitely have those out there. So, well, without further ado, let's let's get started here. And by the way, uh, if you have questions for Jason, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact, and you can send them to me. I'll send to Jason and any questions for me, uh, we can do that also. Well, Jason, again, this is uh, this is awesome having you on. I love listening to your show, and I know you're a truly passionate aviator. But you know, this probably didn't happen overnight. I mean, how, how did you uh, how did you get this passion for aviation and this passion for teaching? Uh, you know, for me, um, I was like everybody else. I think. I mean, a lot of pilots. You talk about, you know, like like Steve Tupper says, you have your fingers entwined in the airport fence, and and that was me. DuPage Airport, St. Charles, Illinois. From the time I was, you know, nine or ten years old, on a Saturday afternoon, it was it was a long walk, but it wasn't too long, and I just spent a lot of time following the airplanes to the airport and um, meeting pilots. You know, people are so generous with their knowledge. Some of the flight schools there used to let me kind of poke around on the simulators from time to time, and um, other pilots would open up charts and sort of show me what the class Bravo rings looked like and. You know, you just uh, for me, it was it was just one of those things that that got ignited early, and it didn't take much. You know, a lot of a lot of what we're doing, like what you're doing with this podcast and what I'm doing online, I think to myself, boy, if I were 12 years old and all this stuff were available to me, I might have never left the house. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I had that Sublogic flight simulator, and my brother thought I was crazy because I would fly it real time from Meg's Field to New York. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, and you're looking at this like two shade screen with little, you know, I mean, the graphics were horrible. So the passion for flying was always there. And um, I think I was one of those people that, for whatever reason, I thought it was beyond 
Um, it, it wasn't going to be something that, that my parents thought were okay. I had no history of flying in my family other than my dad being a student pilot. So, you know, it just seemed like it wasn't really possible until after college when I just said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And I, I expected a lot of blowback, um, you know, that no, no, you should go be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or something like that. And, um, I didn't get that. I got a lot of encouragement and that was a surprise. And it made me, it made me wonder why I had that impression in my head that this wasn't going to be something that people would be supportive of. Um, but they were, and, and that's how I got into, into flying. And wow. I, I went out to the airport and I got a job at, at, at an FBO. Um, and this is post college really. So I just went out and I started at the bottom rung, just driving the fuel truck and, um, trying to immerse myself in flying as much as possible. And I still consider that part of my education very, very valuable. I recommend that to anybody who, ha- who can get a little experience on the flight line to kind of see how operations work and uh, most importantly, meet other pilots who are doing various pilot jobs and you can kind of see what their lives are like and talk to them about what's good about what they're doing, what's bad about what they're doing. Um, and I was in training. So I was really at the airport seven days a week at that point, you know, uh, working all week and training on the weekends. Well, you know, it's interesting that, that you said that you were training on the weekends and working all week. Were you able to get all your ratings that way? Uh, well, just the private. And actually, at that point in my life, I thought I wanted to be an airline pilot. I thought I was going to just, you know, I, I enrolled um, in a little finish, like a little uh, aeronautical science program. And I was finishing up some math credits because I had a liberal, liberal arts, you know, background and I wanted to get some math under my belt. And I thought I was on this airline track until the day I achieved my private pilot certificate. And somehow on that day, everything kind of changed. I realized that, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to be an airline pilot. And I was meeting a lot of guys that were flying for executive jet, which is NetJets now, I think. And, uh, um, I started to talk to a lot of flight instructors and I, I started looking around for a place where the adventurer in me, um, just kind of following my passion, you know, and I, and that's when I moved from Chicago to California and it wasn't only flying that brought me to California. Although the idea that I could fly, 365 days a year was enticing, but it was also, it was also sailing. Um, I came out here and I learned, you know, I, I lived on a sailboat for a long time and sailed from San Francisco to Mexico and all around the Pacific and kind of got into just all what I consider kind of adventure sports, flying, sailing, you know, skiing and that kind of stuff, hiking. And, um, as I was here in California, I, I realized, and this is going to relate to what we're going to talk about today, but I started to meet a different kind of flight instructor. When I was in Chicago, um, not that my instructors weren't great, um, but they were all time builders. They were really there to build the time and move on to my, my primary instructor ended up flying for United. So that's just they were 21, 22, 23. And when I got to California... I started meeting a lot of folks with gray hair. I mean, these guys were teaching and they were, you know, in their 40s and 50s. And I realized in, in this part of the world, like a few others, you can make a career out of teaching. And that's where the career instructors end up going. I mean, it's hard to make a career out of being a flight instructor if you're in a place where you can only fly three, four months out of the year as, you know, with your students. And... Um, I started to get some great what you know what Rod Rakick from Open Airplane calls tribal knowledge. You know, a lot of these these old timers were teaching me things I'd never heard, and I was inspired by the way they were approaching flying and by the way they were approaching teaching. And that's when I realized that 
teaching was really where it was at for me. You know, that I, um, I wanted to be a flight instructor. I didn't, I didn't know what was next, but I, I started to see that I really love teaching and I really loved helping people, uh, learn the concepts and understand them and find some sort of common ground between the two of us. I mean, you meet different people all the time when you're teaching, you never know who's going to walk in the door and it's your job to, um, to teach them and help them understand what you know in, in a way that they can understand it. It's interesting what you said about the variety of people coming through the door. I think uh, we're going to get into some misconceptions, but usually people think they're going to be flight instructing people that want to be airline pilots. Uh, there are, uh, you know, honestly, the most, most of the people I teach do not want to be airline pilots. They want to fly because it's fun or they want to be a corporate pilot or even flight instructor someday. Uh, so what, what, What's the mix where you are? Oh, it's everything. I mean, gosh, I've seen everything. Um, you know, right now I'm teaching at San Carlos Flight Center, which is a very, very busy school and, a, and an excellent school here in Silicon Valley. So most of my students these days are, are tech people, you know, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Apple, Google. Um, and then some, you know, some of the people that work in the investment side of that, you know, lawyers that work for VC banks or, or CEOs of companies that are already successful folks that have started their own companies. But when I was uh, starting, I was over in Oakland and I saw everything. I mean, everything from, you know, like uh, the, the founder of Timbuktu. There's an example of somebody who started the bike messenger bag company. He started a company. The company did quite well. And now he finds himself in a situation where he can afford an airplane and training. Everybody from folks like that to uh, bartenders. I mean, guys would show up on motorcycles with cash in their pocket. And they didn't have to be at work until 4 or 5 o'clock that evening. And they would spend their days studying and, and working on their certificates. And I started to realize it's kind of anybody – who has the desire but also has some amount of time that they can put into it and some amount of disposable income, some cash they can, they can throw toward it. And that can really be, can be any, you know, it can, it can be a lot of different people and it was and it is and it continues to be. Well, you know, you're obviously from, from your voice and from your speaking, you truly are passionate about instructing, about flying, et cetera. But, you know, there, there are a lot of misconceptions about flight instructing. And and you know one of the one of the big ones here, and I'm gonna we're gonna squash this one right away because everybody thinks that you just flight instruct and you starve. I honestly, my first year of flight instructing, I made a living and was able to actually make enough money to to survive. And actually, I was living fairly well. I was uh, at the time, you know, I'm kind of an adventure traveler. Also, I was living full time in a motorhome, mm -hmm. and uh, I could go from point to point. And I was able to live in that motorhome and flight instruct full time. And you know what? It wasn't until I went to the airlines where I stopped making money. So, so I mean, Jason, you actually make a living doing this, right? I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. And, and you're comfortable. You make a comfortable living. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that you can make that $8,000 a year. Uh, and that's usually those people that are just time building, like you said. But, but it goes, you have flight instructors that can make into the six figures. So you, you does run the gamut of, of the different uh, amounts of money that you can make. Is that something that you found in, in the people that you've run across that are flight instructors full-time and in different avenues of flight instructing? Yeah, it is. I think the hard part is sustainability because I think to, to make that kind of money, you have to work so much that it becomes – I mean there comes a point. You know, I mean when you're, when you're 25, 26, 27 years old, you know, three, four flights a day, five, six days a week is, is fine. 
but you know it's feast or famine. There's no you are an educator, but it's not like there's any holiday breaks built in, or you don't get any paid vacations or anything like that. So I think that one of the challenges becomes how do you sustain? Um, how, how are you able to fly that much? The, the amount that's required to earn the money you're talking about. But the other thing that you mentioned about living in the motorhome, that's that's it's very, very similar to how it worked for me. You know, I was living on a boat when I started flight instructing, which is very similar to a motorhome. Um, just, you know, the expenses were fairly low. And it was, you know, I could go out and instruct and in two days I could cover my monthly expenses. Right. So it was like money wasn't a problem when I was when I was single and you get get a chance to really, you know, get your feet wet and, and learn the career a little bit and maybe publish some some materials that supplement you know, your, your income a little bit and, and try to try to build it up that way. But it's a little trickier when you have kids and other responsibilities, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting though, getting back to that whole making some money instructing, um, you know, even, uh, I'll give you an example. When I started instructing, I was making 16 bucks an hour and I was actually able to parlay that into, you know, making, I think it was about 35,000 that year. But that wasn't from flight instructing all the time. It had to do other things. I taught seminars. I partnered with this school that I was working for and said, hey, listen, can I do the seminar? And they said, sure, we'll take X amount of dollars from you, say 10%, 20%. You get to keep the rest. Mm-hmm. So as a flight instructor, you're not just teaching people in an airplane. You're doing other things. So uh, I, don't, I wonder if you agree with this fact, but if you're going to try to sustain yourself as an instructor, you probably should do more than, than only flight instructing. Yeah, I think that, that, you know, definitely. And that can run the gamut from um, just, you know, most flying schools or flying clubs have your, your private pilot ground schools. And they're always looking for people to teach those private pilot or instrument pilot ground schools. And the, you get to kind of get out of the airplane for a moment. You get to, to kind of hone your skills in front of a classroom. And you get to sort of work with the entire pilot pool at the club or at the school. So, you know, you can only get one or potentially two air, two students in an airplane at once. But when you run the ground school, you might get everybody's students who say, yeah, I could use that training. So if everybody signs up and pays $100 or $200 or whatever it is for, for an eight-week course and you show up once a week, like you said, the club is going to want some percentage of that. But a lot of that is for your time and for your effort. And that's just another way to supplement the training you're doing in the airplane in fact we've got i've got one coming up um shortly here in san carlos at san carlos flight center we're doing a uh a presentation on april 27th for its uh survival skills you know what what would happen if you if the worst happened and you end up in a field how do you survive a night out or how do you what kind of things should you put in a survival kit and that kind of stuff it's just a an afternoon seminar. It's a workshop. It's four hours on a Sunday, but it's you know eighty dollars for members that want to attend, and that's you know I still do that that stuff in addition to everything else that we're doing. That's an important part of it, I think. Now there's there's some other, and I think you're right. There's some other misconceptions. Let's go back to that to misconceptions about flight instructing. Um, I, I you know I I've, I've heard from people, and this is true with me too that. You know, if you're going to make money in flight instructing, it, it's tough to do it honestly, and I, and I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, you're not, you don't have to fly planes that are are broken. You don't have to go out and sacrifice your your professionalism. Uh, I've done that. I've actually told students to go away. Um, but you know that that is, I think, a total misconception. It's up to you uh, whether you want to fly professionally or not, and the type of students that you accept. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, I would. You know. Um I definitely would. 
Yeah, you don't have to. I mean, you never really have to fly. I mean, if that's, I'm going to make sure I understand your point exactly, but. Well, if a plane's broken, I mean, if there's something that's, you know, on the edge of being legal, say, not, right. not you know, that, that you, it still might be safe, but it's not legal. Uh, you know, a lot of people have stories of being pushed into flying the airplane. Uh, you as an independent or as an instructor should not have to do that. I mean, you, no. you can turn that down yourself and, and move on if you have to. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and I find, um, with my students here in California anyway, where we get a lot of sunshine, one of the hard things to get them to do is convince them that it's time to do some ground instruction. <laughs> you know, when I was, when I was learning in Chicago, I remember there was a four month stretch, uh, from like, December to, you know, some, some one of the spring months where we really couldn't fly. And it wasn't like there wasn't any good weather, but it was just every time my lesson day rolled around, there, the weather wasn't good. And so I would still, you know, you go out to the airport, and I'm sure everybody listening to this has done this or knows this. You know, you go out to the airport, you sit down with your CFI, and you, and you kind of go through some of the stuff that's, you know, the finer points of understanding the law or chart symbology or, you know, cross-country flight planning. And you just roll up your sleeves, and you spend three hours in the school or in the club going over that stuff. And when when the weather's always beautiful and the planes are always working, it's it's just it's hard to carve that time out. Everybody wants to be out in the airplane and they tell me, Oh, and I'll read that on my own time. I'll read that on my own time. But you know, you don't get the same education. So, you know, I think for, for instructors that are feeling pushed into the airplane because they have to work, you don't necessarily have to do it in the airplane. There's a lot of good thinking and learning that happens on the ground. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that's one of the misconceptions I wanted to bring up. That was the last one I wanted to talk about is the fact that the only way you make money is in the airplane. Uh, that's true if you're being paid to fly, but you're being paid to teach. There's a, a much different story going on here. Uh, right. I've, spent, I've spent a whole day. Uh, I've actually taught for 10 hours in one day and never left the ground. And, and that's something that, that when I tell people that, like, well, wait a minute, that can't be it. You know, why would you charge me for ground instructing? Uh, why would you charge a student? Because you're just sitting here trying to build time. And that's, that's that misconception we go to earlier is that not everybody's trying to build time. You, you're actually, this is my living. You know, this is what I do for a living. So I'm teaching you something. If you go to a tennis instructor or you go to a golf instructor and you spend time discussing, you know, that lesson, you're going to have to pay for that. A scuba instructor, no matter what it is, sailing school, et cetera. Same thing with flight instructing. So I think yeah, that's, that's I a really important I, point. I find that to be so disrespectful, honestly. You yes. know, it's like, it, you know, it's time. My, t- my time is my time. And, you know, for, for younger instructors out there, too, it's, it's always hard for, for me to, you know, the public doesn't really know. You walk into a flight school, you walk into a flying club, and you have no idea what you're getting into. You assume somebody's an instructor, they're an instructor, and they're good. And this isn't to knock new instructors or young instructors because there are some excellent young and new instructors it doesn't you know there's this isn't you know just an equation straight across the board but it's hard as a career instructor to hear that there are people on the flight line charging you know hobbs time in the airplane because they really don't they're not in it for the money they don't need the money you know they're they're already in debt to embry riddle or whatever else they're already they're just trying to get to that airline as fast as they can so they'll spend four or five hours with you and charge you one point two because that's what the Hobbs was, you know, know, it's just, you know, you think, well, I I really just can't do that. I couldn't do that and continue to be a flight instructor for as long as I've been a flight instructor. Now, some people may say, well, okay, that's fine. You can't do that, but you can't, you know, and, you know, too bad for you. But the, the bottom line is when you do something for 15 or 20 years, you develop an expertise in that area. And I think anybody can relate to that no matter what you do. 
if you're an attorney or a doctor or anything, I mean, 15, 20 years in the operating room is going to give you some insights and a slight edge over somebody who's on day three. And, and that, I think, is important for other instructors to understand because what I think younger instructors, need, you know, would be, it would behoove them to do is to seek out that knowledge and, and try to find out what are those things. You know, get a mentor or find a podcast or, or make a phone call or, or just try to spend some time with those in their industry that have been doing it for so long that might have some insights into, into uh, you know, how to do it a little bit better or more precisely yeah and, and, and like you said listen to podcasts like this one if you want to learn how to make money or make a career out of flying whatever it is you know flight instructing etc this is a great place to start um the now let's get a little more granular as far as uh and, and i think that's all the misconceptions i had is there any more you'd like to add there i'm sorry jason i don't want to cut you off on that one um misconceptions about instructing no, no, not really. I can't think of anything. We can just keep moving on if I think yeah, of something. Yeah, you know, and I don't want this to be negative because it's a very positive show here. I just want to get some of those things uh, out of the way. Uh, but th- let's move on to, to the, the positive thing. How, uh, how, uh, how do we make a living doing this? You know, how can we make a living as a flight instructor? And, and uh, you know, I've always told people that you have, to, you have to actually create a good product, and that's you. You have to work on yourself first, which sounds kind of weird, but uh, you have to work on you first, and then you can start working on making a living flight instructing. But there's lots more than, than just, just being a good flight instructor and having knowledge. You have to be able to present it well, and you have to make it fun for people. Those are just a couple things. Uh, but, you know, the, and charge for your knowledge. So, Jason, what, what advice would you give to somebody that wants to go out there and actually, and let's get a little more specific, and make some money actually flight instructing? Um, well, there's a few things. I mean, one is the, the hard reality about, about location and it's, you know, there's a many, many places you can be, but certainly I think it's going to be easier to make money flight instructing in Fort Lauderdale than it's going to be in the upper peninsula of Michigan. I mean, just because there are more flyable days, a lot more, you know, and, and even just recently I was emailing with a, um, a gentleman who is now an airline pilot flying for the regionals. And I asked him that question, just, hey, I just was trying to do some market research and, and look around at the, at the growth of the industry. And, and I just asked him, I said, hey, when you were flight instructing, were you hurting for students or did you have a lot of students? You know, I just was curious what the climate was like where he was. And his answer was, well, when I was in Michigan, I was hurting for students. In Florida, I couldn't even keep up with it. So, you know, and, and there's places all up and down, all around the country. I'm not trying to say that Florida and California are the only two places you can make money. Flight instructor or Tucson where the sun's always shining. That's not it. I mean, um, Carl, you're out on the East Coast. Obviously, you're doing it. But, but that's one thing to consider. You don't want to stack the cards against you um, by being in a place where there just aren't that many flyable days. And then, like you said, it's really about you. And I think I think of myself very similar to a college professor or – even a, um, a, a trial lawyer in, in how I would manage my time. I think that, okay, I definitely need to spend a good percentage of my time in the field doing what I do because it's my expertise. So if you use the college professor example, you have to come and teach, teach lectures and teach classes. But the reason those guys have teaching assistants is because they have to also publish books and they also have to – um, kind of build their name and their reputation throughout the industry in an effort to 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 grow what they do. They do it for themselves, and they do it on behalf of the universities they work for. 
And so I, I kind of think of it a little bit like that when I'm subdividing my time. Like I can fly, but I can't take flights all day long every day unless that's my strategy. And we can hold that thought for a minute because that is another strategy. But for me, that, that's, you know, at, at this point in my career, it's, it sounds tiring to do that for another 30 years to fly three times a day. So I'm trying to balance what I do with teaching, you know, boots on the ground out there, flight instructing and, and keeping the edge sharp and developing new techniques, but also publishing materials available to pilots all over the world that take some of that knowledge and that expertise and make it available to them at maybe a fraction of what they would pay for an hour of my time, but also make it do it in a way that it would supplement my income as a flight instructor to help make the, the career sustainable. And, and, you know, we'll get on that point for uh, after this, you know, talking about weather and location. I think making materials is important, and we'll talk a little bit about that, because it, that you don't have to be there to make money. Uh, right. The one thing you talked about is location. The other thing I, I kind of want to make it a little more granular, a little more add to that a little bit in some color is the fact that the other thing you have to really look at is demographics. And uh, I know in Florida there are certain towns that have airports that you would never make a living. Uh, flying out of that airport because there is, and I'm in Florida right now, there mm-hmm. is no such thing as as somebody that can can have the money or the time in that town. There might be one or two. But for instance, mm-hmm. I used to teach at a, on an island, I still do, at Davis Island, downtown Tampa, in a little place called Peter O'Night Airport. And, you know, the demographics there, there's, there is a large population of people making over, uh, say, $100,000 a year. And that demographic is the type of person you're looking at. So you have to have people that – you have to have that, that weather. You also have to have the, an area where there's people that can afford to fly and, and want to and, and have the time to do it. Uh, and by doing putting myself at that airport, I mean, I was so busy, I was double booking. And that's something else that I used to do, and, and you can add to this if you like, is to make a living flight instructing, I would actually have – standby list. So all day long, I had a standby for almost every lesson because I was so busy, because I was in a good uh, demographic location and, and I had the good weather. I don't know if you do that yourself, uh, Jason, do you? I don't. That's a really smart idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to borrow that one. From you. <laughs> no, go for it. You know, and, and it works. It only works if you have a good scheduling program or you have a good scheduler. Uh, I know the computer programs nowadays, they do have those backups where it'll automatically send a notification. I don't know if that system's still out there because I haven't used it in five years uh, because I very much limit, and we're going to get to this in a minute, as far as part-time flight instructor, I limit what I do. Uh, but I think it's really important to, to keep putting yourself out there and enable people to come see you. Another thing, too, I've found uh, as far as making money is make sure people show up at the airport. And I, I don't want to steal your thunder on this, but if you have a lesson and someone sees a cloud in the sky and they say, oh, the weather's bad, just have them come in because I know what I've done is I follow a syllabus. And in that syllabus, I have you know lessons that I do that aren't only in the air. I have a lot of groundwork. And I tell people, gosh, come on in. We always have something that we can do. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very very important, and and it's also important to un, to I think underscore the idea that that stuff is important, right? If you're in the habit of even calling your students and saying, "Oh, the weather's not great today," okay, we'll cancel. I'll see you next time. It's like, as if to say there's nothing important beyond flying the plane. But but if you take the approach that you just mentioned and say, "No, you're there for a lesson," and I promise there's important stuff for us to look at, you know, and there always is. 
like you said, there's that's always a, stuff to talk about. So. That's that's a great point. You know that, and that that goes back to your point. You know, it's it's that's important is to have that ground school and be paid for all that ground school. And, and I forget the word you use, but you know, it's disrespectful if you expect to come in and, and not get paid for for your instruction time. Uh, so yeah, that that's that's a good point is to make sure people know how important the ground school is. And, and to come in and, and say to them, listen, this is super important. Be here anyway for this lesson. Right. Um, I want to get back to another point you made, though. Uh, you talked a little bit about publishing and making materials available. I'm a big believer in the fact that people read what I do, listen to me, uh, and they listen to you, and they read your stuff because they like you, and they like the approach that you have to flight instructing, just like they like other – there are other instructors they may like better. You know, it's just the way – you know, I, I'm not the best instructor for 100% of the population. That's just the way it is. Some people can relate to somebody else better. But when you put something out there, they're going to buy it from you because they like you. So what have what has you done to make things available to, for other people that like your style of instructing? Um, and do you mean specifically like what types of yeah? Uh, just like what have you put together? And, oh, well, the, I mean the Finer Points podcast was the very first thing in 2005, and um, just being in the San Francisco Bay Area is kind of a tech. Hub. I mean, I I, uh, I wouldn't say this about myself now, but certainly in 2005, I was not a tech guy. I mean, I, I was a pilot and a sailor and an adventurer, and my expertise was about how to do those things. Um, you know, but you know, through being where I am, and you know, I, I got turned on to podcasting, and I have a music audio background, and it seemed like a good fit. And I looked at a successful podcast. I looked at NPR's um, Stardate podcast, which was just a short five-minute or less tip on astronomy each day or week or whatever. And I enjoyed listening to that. So that's what the finer points became, and it, or that's how it started. And um, just a short tip once a week. Just hey, you know, when you're using your checklist, make sure you hold it up so that you can see beyond it and you don't get into that spatial disorientation. Just a little tip. Just this is important for you to understand and this is important for you to understand kind of the spices on your training. And the beautiful thing about podcasts, and I still believe this to this day, is this is free. And you know, that's where I go back to the 12-year-old in myself. The Finer Points Aviation Podcast has more than 25 hours of free instruction available to anybody in the entire world at this point. So anybody that's interested in flying, if you have you know any kids or whomever out there, you know, with their fingers entwined in the airport fence, well, there's 25 hours of instruction, you know, and um, and that's that's still published, you know, at thefinerpoints.net or most of the listeners come through iTunes, but I still do that once a week, and that sort of grew um, through sponsorship of, of from ForeFlight and ZooTheWorks and ASA and others, and uh, grew into a video series and a series of accompanying iOS apps and an iBook. And so at this point, there are you know, two free products that are available and a number of premium products that folks can buy if they like what I'm doing and they think that you know, this, is, this instruction is benefiting them. And, um, and that stuff's important for me as, a, as an instructor to supplement what I do and to um, – you know, I, I spend – at least half my time, probably three quarters of my time now working on those products. And I fly every day, but my flying at this point is early in the morning, you know, 0600 till about 10 in the morning. And then the rest of the day I'm writing or publishing usually. And and that's an interesting point about your podcast and these other materials. I mean, you know, say there's someone listening, they don't want to do a podcast. They want to say, put out a book, et cetera. I have a, a friend of mine now that he published a book on holding procedures, and uh, that was one way he could supplement his income. Uh, there's all sorts of ways to do that, but 
you know, besides, and I understand you make some money on the podcast and the, and the products you sell, but in putting yourself out there, not only as a producer of this podcast, but you can become a guest on other shows. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's important too. But what have you found as far as because of your podcast, you've been able to make extra money or because of any of these other things? Like I do safety meetings. That's helped mm-hmm. me. How has that affected your income as a flight instructor? Um, you mean the products that, that, that yeah, I release? Well, just as a flight, has that enabled you to get more students because you have this this actual system that's out there and you have a presence online? Have Has anybody really come to you and said, hey, listen, I heard you online and I really want to come and I want you to be my instructor? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, not so much locally, funny enough. It's, it's, I, it's mostly uh, pilots from overseas. But, yeah, I mean, at least once a year there's somebody from Germany or Switzerland or England or France or whomever that's over here in the States and knows me through the podcast and wants, wants to do training and, and people in other parts of the country. I, I tend to laugh because I come into the flying club and a lot of my colleagues are so busy flying, they kind of have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the guys that I'm rubbing elbows with every day. And, but, you know, maybe once a month somebody will come in and say, hey, I heard that voice. I know you from the podcast. So, you know, if you're looking for a local, if you're looking to get students, podcasting is probably not the best model for you. It's very, um, you never know who's going to kind of latch on to your personality and your show style and all that sort of stuff. And it goes out to a big audience, you know, so how many of those people are actually local, I'm not sure. But I think the kind of stuff that works really well locally are the kind of things that you were talking about, like seminars. Put yourself out there. Invite people out for an evening. You know, Come out on this Wednesday evening and I'm going to talk to you about um, standard operating procedures or whatever else. And I enjoy that stuff so much that I still do a, a safety seminar once every couple months and I'm doing this survival presentation on April 27th and put together fly-out trips. We do a summer mountain flying trip to, to up to Tahoe. Um, I still do a lot of that stuff, and I think that's the kind of local marketing that gets your name out there. And and let's face it, airports are, are community places, so if you want to get to the pilots that are in your community and that are going to be flying at your airport, you need to have your face out at the airport and and be you know be speaking to those people directly. And the podcast is really you know for me is more about reaching a global audience, reaching an audience that might not have access to this stuff um, for financial reasons yet or because they're young or or whatever else. Uh, People that just want to stay proficient, stay current, they're very busy with work or they haven't flown in a while. And those are the folks I think that that tend to listen to the podcast. And that's so it. Yeah, I was going to say that's a great point. Is doing things locally, and I think that that was going to be lead into my next topic. Is is you know, do you believe you should get involved locally? Obviously, you do. And uh, you know, my I know we only have a few minutes left, but one other point that I always make is is wear a t shirt or something that says aviation on it. You know, right. <laughs> and people will say, "Hey, do you fly airplanes?" and and you can grab them. And that's you can do that locally at any restaurant that you go to. Right, <laughs> and and you know the other thing I've seen work really well, and I'm just going to um he's not here to do it. So I'll, I'll toot his horn for him. But Dan Dyer here at San Carlos flight center has done an amazing job of tapping into the local community. And even before San Carlos flight center was open, Dan had a program called fog, which was the Bay area fly out group. And there was no cost to be a part of the flyout group. It didn't matter uh, which flying club you came from. It didn't matter if you owned an airplane, you could be out of Palo Alto, San Carlos, Hayward, Oakland. It didn't matter. But what Dan did was put together a Yahoo group and start saying, hey, who, who wants to go wine tasting in Santa Maria this weekend? You know, we'll stay overnight. We'll stay down there for the weekend. Or who wants to go whitewater rafting, you know, this, this Saturday? Or who wants to go out to Yellowstone? Or, you know, he would just start planning these adventures. 
And pilots, I think, are looking for a reason to fly. You know, you can only go out there so many times and fly around your local area. But if you've got a mission, if you've got a reason to go down to the airport and you've got a community that's all part of that mission and the flying is kind of incidental to the mission, it can be a whole lot of fun. And this fog group, I mean, before, before you know it, you have a thousand pilots that were part of the fog group. And when Dan opened San Carlos Flight Center, that group really became the community that keeps the club alive and strong. And that's uh, you know that that's awesome. I think that's a that's a great idea. You know the the other thing that maybe you would suggest too is I know people using Meetup dot uh, huh. com and uh, I get invites uh, to things locally all the time, and I think I think that's a great idea too. So similar to what you you're saying there, kind of a a little local users group. So uh, uh, I think all those different things that you can do locally are terrific. Well, uh, Jason, I know we're, we're, you've got to get back to your lessons in, in, uh, in about five minutes here, but real quickly, let's talk a little bit about uh, one or two minutes on, on working part-time as a flight instructor and then uh, being able to money, make money doing that, and then we'll move on to how we can find you on the Internet. Uh, do you know anybody that's working part-time and able to make a, a decent part-time living? Yeah, um, I don't know how to define a decent part-time <laughs> living. You know, I mean, I... I know a lot of folks that are teaching part-time. I think to them the money is um, secondary, obviously, and it's sort of, you know, it's not really why they're doing it. And, and I don't, you know, they don't treat it the same way um, as a result. I think some of those folks are a little lax on the time they bill and whatnot. And, you know, that that's maybe good for the students. It, it, may, it may not be. But I, I think that for them – the money doesn't matter much. They're doing it because they, they really love to do it and it's always been a dream for them. You know, and I think of, I know a couple guys that work at Apple, for example, and after they get off work at Apple or on the weekends, they teach flying. And certainly with an Apple salary, whatever they make flight instructing is not really, you know, important. Right. But, but they love it so much that, and it's a dream that they've always wanted to do it so that that's why they do it. And that in itself is inspiring, really. I mean, I can't, you know, if you work that hard in your normal life and you still have a desire to go out to the airport on the weekend and, and try to help students understand it, you know, it's... I think that's awesome. You know, I, I know of one guy who used to work at NASA or still works at NASA and on, on uh, his time off he would come out and teach. He actually was doing better than some of the full-time instructors, but that's because he was so consistent. They knew when he had to be – they had to be there for him at 5 p.m. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get go fly with him. And they knew they had to show up for the lesson because if he didn't show up, he'd get rid of you because he has another student behind that. So, yeah, you can make a little bit of money part-time instructing. It might pay some bills, and, and that's kind of the point I want to make is that uh, you really – if you want to make a living at it, I think you have to do it full-time, but you can make a decent amount of extra money, say to pay a car payment, maybe even a rent payment, who knows, sure. uh, doing that. Yeah. Um, but uh, anything else you, you want to tell people about flight instructing before we close here? What Any any general advice to, to people here that are listening that, number one, want to do it for a living, number two, want to do it uh, as a stepping stone? Um, well, I just think not to underestimate the teaching part of it. Um, and I have a – that's you know what I said up front is one of my favorite things about flight instructing is getting to meet different kinds of people. And I always ask people some basic questions that are common in my experience. Like I always ask folks if they've ever ridden a horse because there's a lot that's more similar about flying to riding a horse than driving a car. you know. Or I ask them if they've ever shot a gun because I want to know if sight picture has – if they've ever heard that word before. You know, if they've ever looked through a scope and had to aim precisely. So in my – world when I'm meeting somebody I'm trying to understand where they come from so that I can use analogies to help them understand the world of flying 
like uh, in coding, for example. I, I work with a lot of web developers, and there are some standard operating procedures in coding. And any developers listening to this will know you don't try to retype a long link. You copy it and you paste it, right? You mm -hmm. learn that really early on in, in web development. If you try to type out those links, you're going to get them wrong. There's a, standard, there's a standard operating procedure. Well, in flying, this is the way we do it for a very similar reason. You know? So I try to find commonality with students so that we can speak the same language. And I also stay very aware of what I call the saturation point, and that is when when the student gets overloaded, uh, the processor is just spinning. There's no, you know, they can't think. You could say, "Hey, what's your name?" and they would say, "Hold on a minute." You know, they can't really even answer a basic question. This is probably more common in instrument training, but I talk about that because I don't want them to get frustrated in the cockpit with me, and I really don't want to get frustrated with them. So when they reach that point, often I'll unload it. You know, I'll take the airplane for a second and just take control of things and, or turn on an autopilot if we have one. I'll tell them to turn on the autopilot so they can experience unloading their processor. And then they can start thinking again. And I think it's important to talk about that and, and work with it as a muscle. It's like anything else. Just because you got oversaturated doesn't mean you're not good at this. But you can't go to the gym tomorrow and bench press 300 pounds, right? You're going to get to a point where you've hit your limit. Then you back off your limit a bit. You do some more exercises to build your strength. And then you push toward that limit again to see if you can't take it a little further. And it's no different with that saturation point. Well, I think that's some great great advice for everybody that's getting into aviation as, a, as an instructor. And Jason, boy, I tell you, I really appreciate your being here at Aviation Careers Podcast. This is some some great advice coming from a, a really great instructor, I feel. And uh, and, and you know what? If, if you get a chance, listen has to say on his podcast and if you have any any questions you can direct them here at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact but jason how what's the best place to go to get in touch with you where can they find you and all the different products you're doing and give us one exciting thing that you're doing right now that they can look at um well um you can go to the finerpoints.net and that's the finer points t-h-e-f-i-n-e-r-p-o-i-n-t-s dot net not dot com and that's the main website um that's where you'll find all the products and the the one that i'm most excited about most passionate about the most recent is probably the ibook it's called setting the standard and it's really um it's really an analysis of how commercial operators have whittled away the danger of their flying through standardization over the last 40 years. <clears throat> and if you think about it, it's very, very difficult to find a commercial accident that's, quote, repeated itself in the last 40 years. There's maybe two or three, and there's a good reason for that. Every single company looks at that accident and develops a procedure that would prevent the possibility of it occurring again. And when I look around at, at general aviation, and I unfortunately at this point in my career have friends that, that have crashed or, or know people that are out there doing dangerous things, and they don't even know it because we're just not looking at each other. And in some cases, our egos prevent us from talking about what folks did last month or you know whatever it is. And so this book uh, deals with how to adopt uh, standard operating procedures in a single pilot environment. And that's called setting the standard. And um, I'm sorry, Carl, you cut out there for a second, but I wanted to thank you also for having me on the show here. Um, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, Jason, I, I I'd love to have you on again. And I tell you, if I have any questions, I'd like to forward them on to you. Uh, I, Jason, uh, he you actually have inspired me to get into uh, into the podcasting world. So for those of you that like Aviation Careers podcast, uh, one of the people and, and Jason and I have only met each other once for a very short amount of time. Uh, you can be inspired by people throughout the world. I mean, my instructors are people that are on the internet, in books, etc. Just you know, my my suggestion is to keep listening to those people like Jason. 
place and keep listening to all the other people that I've had on this show and, and go to their websites. As a matter of fact, all that Jason's talked about here, I'll have on aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 55. We're going to put all sorts of links to all the different products he has. And, uh, you know, of course, if you get a chance, come by here and take a look at the uh, website. And, and you know, if you like the, the program, check out the sponsors. Also, for those of you that are in instructing or want to move forward, I have the aviationscholarshipsguide.com where you can go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash scholarships. Uh, that's a place that people can find some money. We're constantly growing that every week. And that is an awesome guide that uh, my assistant, Russ, he's the actually coordinator for those scholarships, is doing a bang-up job put, putting together. And I, I think that would be awesome for, for you to sh- put that towards your students because you never know what kind of money is out there to help you move forward. You would It's amazing uh, the different scholarships that you can get to uh, move on to a separate rating or to, to fund your whole flight training. And I think that's just awesome. There's some really wonderful people out there that are giving money towards flight training. Well, Jason, uh, thanks again for being here. And I, I really appreciate you and I appreciate everything you've done for aviation. You know, and, and I can't wait to see the new products uh, that come up in the future. I'm sure there'll be a few more, won't there? Yeah, well, I'm always working on new ones. I'm always trying to make the, the products we have better and uh, and continue to develop new ones and innovate. And and thank you also, Carl. It's been great. You know, that's one thing about, I love about Jason is he's always moving forward, making one more step towards towards whatever he's doing in his career. And I want you that's listening right now to think about one step that you can take towards your career goal and write it down right now. Think about it. If you're driving, you know, stop the car or just keep it, keep it in your mind and and do that thing. Do that thing tomorrow, today, uh, whether it's making a phone call or asking your flight instructor a question. And uh, and if you do do that and you want to share that, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact and share it with us. Well, folks, I really appreciate your listening today. And I hope that you'll come and visit us again at Aviation Careers Podcast and get inspired by these wonderful stories just like Jason Miller here. And safe flying. We'll talk to you next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.